Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop for tickets, for sporting events, music concerts, and more. Use the promo code HANGUP in the SeatGeek app or shop online at SeatGeek.com. Are you a true pescatarian? Can't get enough Mike Pesca between Hang Up and Listen and The Gist? Join Mike for his first ever live variety show tomorrow, Tuesday the 29th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Guests include comedian Samantha B, storyteller Matthew Dix, economics reporter Adam Davidson, a live edition of Is That Bullshit with Maria Konnikova. There are only a few tickets left, so head to slate.com slash nycgist for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 28th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Max Linsky to talk about Brown's Cast, a new podcast that goes deep inside one of the top 32 NFL franchises, <laughs> the Cleveland Browns. We'll also discuss ESPN's surprising recent embrace of sports gambling, and we'll mark the passing of baseball and linguistic legend Yogi Berra, who died last week at the age of 90. Stefan Fatsis is out this week. So filling in for him at our New York studio is Scott Rabb, who's a writer for Esquire, the author of The Whore of Akron, and is listed on the Wikipedia page for Cleveland State, notable alumni under the category of other. <laughs> Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. What an honor. Anytime. Yeah, and I'm glad nice. that you took that Brown's joke in the intro and in the spirit in which it was intended. And that spirit was mockery. <laughs> Derision. <laughs> there could be no lower hanging fruit. So I hope I hope you're proud of yourself. Oh, so proud, very proud. Uh, you got to take the comedy where it comes. With Scott in New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hi, I'm a fan of a top thirty-one football team, the Jets. That's all time, by the way. Is it? 
Um, not I really. feel like the, not the, if the you, Saints. Not if you include the uh, Dayton Triangles and the Maroons. Yeah, they're not top 31. <laughs> the Saints have to be top 30 mm-hmm. since yeah. they won a Super Bowl. Um, Mike, we're going to bring back Whimsy Watch after a strong demand from at least four people. Okay. For me, that's strong. So, Scott, Whimsy Watch, it was uh, inaugurated by Mike Pesca last year, who noted correctly that the one thing missing from the NFL is whimsy, the whimsical moment. And so we went in search of them. And I found one this week. I don't know if you guys saw Warren Buffett was on the sidelines <laughs> yes. of the Dolphins game. And it, this wouldn't count as whimsy if Warren Buffett was on the sidelines wearing a Dolphins jersey. He was wearing an Indomitian suit jersey. What counts as whimsy in my book is that he was wearing shoulder pads. <laughs> he was wearing a full uniform on the Dolphins sideline to support his friend from Nebraska, Indomitian Sioux. Is that whimsy, Mike? That's whimsy. And then uh, they noted on the broadcast, Solomon Wilcox, who was doing the game as the Dolphins played the Beals, as Solomon said. Of all the teams to assign Solomon, why the Beals? Anyway, he said that uh, he doubted when the score got to around 143 to 7 that Mr. Buffett was still in the building. If so, he'd questioned the Sage and the Oracle of Omaha. He would even question the Dolphins more if Buffett got into the game. Well, even. they need a, They need a left guard, so... All right, on our bonus segment. And that, that was the triumphant return of Whimsy Watch. That was it. Well, wait, <laughs> it. wait. I, I just Do you can have a whimsical there, watch? Yeah. I, I, no, I just question whether anything about a billionaire's behavior can be classified as whimsy. That is a great counterargument. Yeah, this is the kind of banter we look for in well, Whimsy Watch. Well, it's not even banter. I'm pondering. I mean, I love it's delicious and perhaps whimsical that it would be the Sioux jersey that Buffett was wearing. <laughs> and I'm thinking about a billionaire on the sideline, Omaha guy. Uh, whimsy, we're pushing it. That's all. Just my opinion. My my whimsy da- my whimsy watch nominee is uh, Von Miller has this sack dance that they refuse to show on television. It's not a dance. It's just a it's just a pelvic thrust with arms akimbo beside the head. Wait, those arms can't be akimbo beside the head. Anyway, they cut away from it, but sometimes the cameras capture it, thus putting the announcers in the weird position of acknowledging the most unignorable thing on the field or not. And uh, luckily, this one time he got the sack, it was uh, negated by penalty so they could pretend he didn't just thrust in the homes of, you know, the number one rated show on TV this week. Well, you know the origin of that. So I, I was going to put that in Whimsy Watch, but I thought we'd talked about it last year. So he's doing the Key and Peel McCringleberry yes. sketch where he thrusts three times and draws the penalty. So what Von Miller does is he thrusts twice and then just holds up two fingers <laughs> to indicate that he's not getting the excessive celebration penalty. <laughs> it's like there is a certain snake eating its tail aspect to it because it's a parody of how NFL players celebrate that an NFL player then enacts on the field. Yep. Uh, Total Sports calls it Von Miller celebrates with erotic hip-thrusting sack dance. (laughs) I think that's in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Erotic. Um, Scott, did you find it erotic? I I missed it. I was was, uh, tuned into a Romanian stream of the uh, Browns' loss (laughs) yesterday. (laughs) All right, we'll get to the Browns, the sadness (laughs) of the Browns, in approximately 40 seconds. On our... Bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We'll have Max Linsky, one of the hosts of the Long Form Podcast, talk with us about sports journalism, what makes a great sports story, and if it's any different than what makes a great story of any other classification. Uh, to hear that segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. Okay, back to uh, mocking the Browns. They lost to the Raiders on Sunday. Very kindly, 
helping the Raiders end their 11-game road losing streak, very philanthropic thrust of the Browns franchise, likely destroying just three games into the season any great hope that Browns fans have of ending the franchise's 12-year playoff drought, tied with the Raiders for the second longest in the NFL behind the Buffalo Beals. But don't be sad, Scott. Don't be sad, Clevelanders, because there's a good podcast about your team. It really isn't that better than any possible success on the field? The answer is no, but it's still a good podcast. Uh, in the first two episodes, Max Linsky, one of uh, the co-hosts of the long-form podcast, talks to all-pro offensive tackle Joe Thomas and wide receiver Andrew Hawkins, who despite standing just five foot six, led the team in receiving yards last season. Here's a clip from Brown's cast where Hawkins explains how he got NFL scouts to notice him. Before I got the pro day that morning, I woke up with the Michaels, also something I thought up. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm trying to measure in as, as tall as possible because how tall I am, I'm going to get counted out before we even get to the to the drill portion. So I went and bought clay from Michael's uh, craft store and molded the clay to the bottom of my heel and uh, taped my ankles over top of the clay like as if I, my ankle was taped so you couldn't see it. So technically I'm sitting on my tippy toes, but it looks like I'm just standing <laughs> flat. So I measured in about two inches taller than what I would have normally, you know, it's like part kind of a movie, man. Inch and a half to two inches, and and then I put a two and a half pound weights in each pocket to give myself an extra five pounds. So I measured at five eight, one hundred eighty two pounds on pro day. <laughs> Joining us now in our New York studio is Max Lenski, the host of Brownscast. Thanks for being here, Max. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a uh, it is a real honor. I have listened to your show for a long time. We appreciate that. And what is Scott's mood? At this moment, after Scott after seems jovial. I, I gotta say, I can't believe you just called the season already. It's week three or four now. I, guess. Oh, I think it's totally appropriate. Man. Totally appropriate to call the season. At no this way, point. you no innocent way. lad. Ye, ye of little... It's gonna get so ugly in Berea. You have no idea. Scott's in a great mood. He's I'm smiling. just saying. He's having a good time. I am. So your first two interviews, Max, were with players. For future episodes, you've talked to the equipment manager, yeah. the president of the team, the, yeah. um, the franchise's icon, NFL icon, uh, Jim Brown. So I wanted to ask kind of what your goal is here. It's probably not just to document the sadness and, <laughs> and, and horrors of a typical Brown season, but to speak in broad terms, Stefan's book, A Few Seconds of Panic, he kind of showed how players really think um, in an NFL locker room. Nikki Davidoff's book, Collision Low Crossers, he showed how coaches think and approach their jobs. If you think like really big picture, what do you want to show with this podcast? What do you want people to take away from it with your look inside the organization? Uh, it would be uh, it would be incorrect to say that I, I like went into it with a very clear goal. It, it wasn't nearly as as thought out as those books apparently were. But one thing that has come through, and one thing that that the players and the non football people and the business side and the equipment manager. One thing that, that has become clear and that these people all share is uh, it's really hard to make the NFL in any capacity. So I think what, what it started to become about is their stories, their personal stories, how they got there. Almost all of them, actually everyone I have talked to so far, overcame some incredible tragedy at some point in their lives. And so I think that's that's if there's one big overarching idea, it's... What does it take to make the NFL? And uh, and then as a sort of like side pod, I guess, what's your like actual job like? I mean, 
you know, I, I've never uh, been a sports reporter. Like, I've not spent a lot of time in an NFL facility before. And so part of what I'm curious about is just, like, whether you're the all-pro left tackle or the equipment manager, like, what, what do you do all day? What's your job? How did it come about? I have this imagination. There's this huge podcast fan somewhere within the Browns organization. He pitched it to a boss who didn't know what a podcast was, but read an article on Serial. They gave them an estimate of how much it would cost as part of uh, a blip in an NFL marketing budget. And they said, sure. Am I getting that right? Uh, I think part of that is right. Okay. There's definitely, there was some interest. There's one person in the organization who is a fan of podcasts. Is it Mike Patton? It is not Mike Penn. <laughs> it is not Mike Penn. I don't think. I mean, yeah, Penn, he Penn, be. Penn's an interesting guy. He could he's listen a, to he's a Night Vale guy, yeah. <laughs> Are we going to get to talk about Scott's piece on Penn? Is that, that going to come sure. up? I want to talk about it. It just did. <laughs> Please, go ahead. Uh, but basically, yeah, they decided they wanted to do a podcast, I think, because they're trying to figure out a way to tell those stories I was just talking about. And they got my name from someone, and they brought me out uh, for a day to give them a kind of like podcasting 101. Oh, and so I did that, and I was like, this is how this works, and this is how you can record them and distribute them. And then they called, and I was like, well, this is the, if I were you, this is the show I would do, which is to interview not just players, but uh, sort of people from around the organization. And they called me back a couple of days later, and they said, uh, why don't you just do it? So that's it. That was the story. And then, and then I showed up and, and uh, started to do that. Are you getting any, is there any evidence that you're reaching non-football fans or that you're reaching football fans in a non-football way, in a way that they're not used to? Well, as you know, Mike, the, uh, the analytics for podcasts are incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing what you can know about your listeners. Wow, they have that blood type? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I do think that, uh, that there has been uh, some interest from non-football fans. Like, certainly, a lot of people who listen to long form are listening to it. And I think that that is part of the the hope of the show is to, you know how like, do you guys watch Hard Knocks? Sure. You watch Hard Knocks even though you're not like a huge Houston Texans fan, right? Because it's like a it's like a side of it that you don't get to see. I think that's the idea. You know, we're hoping it. it I do I do think it has some appeal to non football fans, but I think it also is going to appeal to football fans who are not Browns fans, and then hopefully it's it's got some uh, appeal to Browns fans too. You know, I think these are stories that maybe they haven't heard, and certainly like. You know, aside of these guys, maybe they haven't heard. But I don't know, Scott. What, as a as a Browns fan, what do you think? I have I have so many feelings about, about <laughs> this. I mean, I, part of it is as if you know, I I was a devoted, a devout uh, Roman Catholic, and the Vatican had decided to bring in someone to podcast who wasn't a Roman Catholic <laughs> and didn't profess to know a whole lot about Catholicism. I've lived and died with with that team. Uh, it feels like my entire life, and mostly died. Part of it, I realize after many years, is I, I always uh, loved hating and loving athletes and realized I much prefer to think of them as two-dimensional human beings mm. who don't exist in the same real world, don't suffer the tragedies. I, I don't want to have to feel that depth. Now, now I've, I've tried to fight that part of myself. I've enjoyed the, the first one with Joe Thomas, the play to the offensive lineman, the one with little, little Andrew Hawkins. I've enjoyed both of them immensely. Part of me, of course, that lives and mostly dies with the Browns Sunday after Sunday wants you to go in there with an automatic weapon. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to, to note here at That'll the uh, at the form. top, it's not, it's like, it's not journalism. <laughs> bad form or long yeah, form? Yeah, that would be bad, bad form. <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> be a very long, bad day. Uh, yeah, it's not journalism. 
Well, I, I'm not. I would not say that. I think it is a, a it is journalism, but my, perhaps my definition is more embracing. And again, you have nothing to defend. I think it's it's kind of cool and exciting. You just happen to pick the team <laughs> that, especially on a Monday after a loss to the Raiders, I believe they had not won in that time zone since 1985. <laughs> since they invented the time zone. <laughs> so. No, that was a home game. Home game. Yeah, oh, the Raiders yeah. had. Oh, the Raiders had one of the times. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, I'm a little bitter. You know, I, my rage and, and bitterness are always close to the surface. I enjoy and look forward to the the kind of narrative journalism. Honestly, I'm not pandering here. I like it. Can I wait? I want to go back to something you just said, though. So you you want to not know these guys better because it makes it easier to hate them. It. It, I have I have a lot of feelings about Joe Thomas. I have a lot of feelings ab- about Andrew Hawkins. They're not necessarily two-dimensional feelings. I mean, to the extent I know about and of both men, uh, it's fine. But I hate that organization. I, I think that's one of the most disgraceful, clownish franchises in professional sports and perhaps in professional sports history in the United States. That's the truth. So I, I, every minute that I spend... Thinking about Hawkins's long, tortuous journey, you know, to, to become a five foot six inch, you know, slot receiver yeah. in the NFL is a moment I'm not spending hating the <laughs> Cleveland Browns. All right, all right. Well, I can tell you as uh, as a uh, you know, I've now been there for almost uh, a month, and what I've found is that it's just a lovely group of people. Yeah, and you said the food is great. You wouldn't believe how much free food there There is. There is really good food. This is all true. I mean, like, it isn't journalism. I've been hired by the team to do a show about the team. That said, they've given me, like, incredible leeway. I really am just, like, going there and walking around and eating too much free food. That part is true. What's the best thing that you've eaten? Well... Here's the thing that I didn't know uh, about the way an NFL facility works. The first day I walked in, and there's like a whole smoothie bar. And I was like, yeah, I'm like a, not a healthy person, but I should have one of these smoothies. And I walked up, and uh, a <laughs> very nice woman behind the smoothie bar was like, uh, it's players only. Oh. And I was like, wait, how do you know I'm not a player? How do you know? Yeah. Because there's a lot of 5'9 Jewish guys, right, playing in the NFL. Um and anyway, yeah, so that you, I didn't get a smoothie is the answer to that question. Uh, but I've had some delicious sandwiches. You couldn't get Isaiah Crowell to uh, sneak <laughs> you a smoothie? Hey, man, hook it up. No, no, uh, there's, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of rules, a lot of organization in an organization. A tremendous structure. Yeah, yeah and, this, and this is kind of sitting outside of it a little bit. So with uh, Joe Thomas and Andrew Hawkins, these are guys who are uh, smart, thoughtful guys. And to channel my inner fatsis here, I would say... You shouldn't be surprised that these guys are smart and thoughtful guys. NFL players are all smart and thoughtful. How dare, <laughs> how dare you suggest uh, otherwise? But, you know, we all know that athlete interviews can be death. I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, trying to draw out an athlete who just doesn't want to be drawn out. The cliches runneth forth. So do you think that you just talk to the right guys? Or do you think that there's something about the context in which you're talking with them that they felt comfortable? And if you had talked to, you know, any of the people in that locker room, you would have gotten a similar good story. I actually do think that the context is really important. I mean, you know, these guys are doing interview after interview after interview after interview, and most of them max out at like two and a half minutes. And it's all negotiated, you know. Uh, It's all worked out beforehand. And when you do two and a half minute interview after two and a half minute interview after two and a half minute interview, you get the same questions a lot. You give the same answers a lot. And sometimes 
it's not clear that anyone's really listening to anyone. And it is different when you're going to spend an hour with one person. You know, I record these in an empty office. It's just me and two microphones and, and the guest. And they're there for a real amount of time. I mean, you know, uh, I, I spent, uh, I was there last week and I did one that was, you know, an hour and a half. And that's rare. I think it's rare that they spend that kind of time with someone asking questions. And they've all taken the same sort of shape, which is that the first five or ten minutes is a little stiff, you know. Uh, and they're trying to figure out, I think they just assume it's going to be like any of the other interviews. And then after a while, like, okay, you've asked me like ten questions about my father. This is going to be a little bit different. And they kind of loosen up. I, I, my experience, and this is true uh, on on the long form podcast as well, is that you know people want to tell their stories if you really listen, and and so I do think that that the context has been really important. Getting that space has been really important, and uh, and there is you know I mean again like I, I want to be totally clear about it. The Browns have the final say on the edit, so there's also a level of safety to it. You know, it's like they they can say they can really kind of speak their minds. Well, I, this I, is this is the best version of it, but. It is part of a trend of teams controlling their own media, hiring people away from newspapers, hiring people away from uh, Brooklyn podcasts. But <laughs> this is a way for the team to, you know, control, you know, how people hear about it, what people hear about it. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it makes it less likely that an Andrew Hawkins or Joe Thomas would open up to a reporter from a non-Browns-owned or affiliated outlet. I don't know. I think that, I I mean, there is some level of that, although this podcast is an experiment. I mean, they didn't need to do this, you know. Uh, So I I do think that it's, the the motivation is about trying to find a way to tell these guys stories well. It's not like, you know. Find another way to squeeze out. Yeah, I mean, it's not like another game report, you know. It's, uh, it, it, it feels different than what, other media was doing as well. So what happens when, if the team go, you know, at the point the team is three and 10, let's say, and that could happen, right, Scott? Easily. Yeah. Okay. So I have, for the record, I have much higher hopes. Your journalist hopes, yes. Your you journalist side, your journalist side is not going to want to ask them how'd you call a run on that play, but you're going to want to capture the mood that's not going to be fun and ebullient and here I am to tell you my life story. How are you going to navigate that, do you think? If things get really bad, don't you want to communicate maybe some of the uh, negativity that's going on in Brown's headquarters? Well, I can tell you, I mean, I, I went, I was there the day after uh, the first game of the season at the Jets, which did not go well. No. And I interviewed two players who had, those episodes haven't come out yet, but who had a, had a, had a prominent role in the game not going well. And we talked about it, you know. But it wasn't it wasn't an X's and O's conversation. You know, it was about what is it like? I mean, my question was like, what is it like to have a bad day at work yeah. when there were 100,000 people watching? You know, that was my question. And it turns out that these guys are a lot better at dealing with it than I am. Like, I have a bad day at work, and it throws me off for like three days. Right. No one even cares. But they get free smoothies to satiate That's them. true. Yeah. That's true. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of smoothie in there. But yeah, so I mean, I think that's the approach. Like, I... I am uh, under no illusions. Like, I am not the person who anyone in Cleveland wants to hear talk about X's and O's and strategy on the field or any of that stuff. So what I'm interested in is if the season goes bad or if the season goes well. Like, what's it like? What's it actually like if you're playing on that team? Scott, are there any words you want to send 
Max off with? Maybe any uh, I, bugs I, that you want to plant on his person? I, I'm very interested. I don't know uh, if Max, if you were aware about uh, Andrew Hawkins's T-shirt after Tamir Rice after yes. The, okay, and I just I don't know if you asked him about uh, the blowback from wearing that justice. Tamir Rice was a 12 year old shot and killed by a Cleveland police officer literally seconds after the police officer stepped out of his vehicle. 12 year old boy with a toy gun. And and he wore the shirt and and so I, uh, was that something you he, felt free to ask him about? He wore the shirt. Yeah. And then I believe it was the chief of police in Cleveland. It was uh, the, the police union head. Pl- police union head. Yeah. Uh, criticized him for wearing the shirt. Yeah. And then he delivered one of I, I I honestly believe one of the great speeches by an athlete in the last ten or twenty years. Did you've seen that the, yes. that locker room speech? Yes. Maybe we can put a put a clip uh, of that speech right here. As you all know, and it's well documented, I have a two-year-old little boy, the same two-year-old little boy that everyone said was cute um, when I jokingly threw him out of the house earlier this year. And that little boy is my entire world. Um, And the number one reason for me wearing the T-shirt was the thought of what happened to Tamir Rice happened into my little Austin scares the living hell out of me. And my heart was broken for the parents of Tamir and John Crawford knowing they had to live that nightmare of a reality. It just gave me uh, it just gave me chills listening to that. And I did ask him about mm-hmm. it. And without betraying what he said because everything he said was off the record Mm -hmm. I think he feels as though he said what he was going to say on that but to answer your question yeah absolutely felt comfortable and I I wonder and we we can't know this I wonder if the team I mean I I think Mike's question about the the negativity and I'm smiling because you'll see (laughs) I mean I'll be surprised if Mike Patton and Ray Farmer last the year the negativity is one thing. The politics of something like that, I just wonder if the team would have had the subject been, been willing to go on the record and talk about it. They, they've, whether... been, they've been really open to this idea, right? Okay. They, this is their idea, and they're open to making it work. So I haven't gotten any you-can't-ask-that-questions. All right, Max, we look forward to listening to the rest uh, of the Browns casts. Do you know which... Uh, is going to be the next episode? Yeah. The next episode will be out next week. Uh, it is with equipment manager Brad Melland. That guy's job is uh, completely insane. You asked him about <laughs> right, the, sm- and- the smells? <laughs> we did talk about the smells <laughs> good, a little bit. Good. We did. Can't wait. You can find it uh, anywhere that fine podcasts can be found on the Browns website on SoundCloud. Yeah, that's anywhere they can be found. The, that's where I go to, the it, Browns it website. Actually, before the- <laughs> We actually built a standalone site for it, too. It's at uh, brownscast.com. Brownscast. All right, Max Linsky, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. Max Linsky is the host of Brownscast and one of the hosts of the Long Form Podcast. It is now time for a word from our sponsor this week, SeatGeek, which helps you find the best value when you're looking for tickets. It's offering $20 off to listeners who use our promo code HANGUP. Mike, you may know that the New York Mets have clinched a spot in the baseball playoffs, the Major League Baseball playoffs. Yo, yes. 
Um, not, you may the also be, not the baseball playoffs for small nations, which you covered once, I believe. Yes. Uh, you may also be aware it's been a while since the Mets were in the playoffs. It's not a Cleveland Browns unit of time that they've not been in the playoffs, but <laughs> it it's It can close. be measured in Earth years, yes. It's bastard. Uh, <laughs> so tickets for the Division Series are going to be very hard to get, which is why you should use SeatGeek if you want to get in the stadium. They do a lot of things that other ticketing sites don't. They pull in ticket options for hundreds of online ticket sellers. Um, it's just like you go to Kayak to check out flights for every airline. When you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available for that game all on one page. Also, they have a great feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a 1 to 100 value and plots the best deals on a color-coded interactive map so you can easily identify the best values at a glance, which is a very valuable service for a hot ticket like a Mets playoff game when all the seats are pretty expensive. It's also important you can identify the worst values, which are listed under the non-euphemistic awful deals. Do not buy tickets in Section 128 at City Field down the left field line, which are listed at $831 each. That is an awful deal. Yes. Seat I went Geek. to City Field a couple weeks ago, and I used I, – I'm not even kidding. I used SeatGeek to get in. And two things. One, City Field accepts – tickets on your phone because the year is 2015 <laughs> and two yankee stadium does not this is not a seat geek thing they tell you beforehand hey yankee stadium doesn't accept it you got to print it i thought they were lying they weren't all right that's my help that's my helpful hint for consumers well the seat geek mobile app mike um it makes the ticket buying process seamless and easy once you find a ticket you can complete the purchase with just two quick taps there's no faster way to buy tickets we have a great deal for our listeners download the free seat geek app Enter the promo code HANGUP in the app, and SeatGeek will send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by 100% guarantee. Download the free app and enter the promo code HANGUP today. So as a real American, I've been watching a lot of college football this September. There's nothing that marks you as a real American more than fandom of the college football. When I've been watching it on ESPN, I've seen at least what I feel is a surprising amount of chatter about a topic that has long been verboten, which is gambling. On SportsCenter and on College Game Day, prognosticators pick college games against the point spread. During one game, the network flashed a cover alert informing viewers that Western Michigan was trailing by 17 in a game where Michigan State was favored by 18. ESPN has since announced that they won't be doing those cover alerts anymore, but the coordinating producer for College Game Day told Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch, we recognize that fans are very interested in this type of talk. Our goal on College Game Day is to serve the fans, and we believe by doing this from time to time and when we feel it's right, that serves the fan. So I find this very fascinating. I've always seen it as kind of infantilizing. The networks won't acknowledge that a lot of people are watching because they want to see if their bets will pay out. On the other hand, I think just because it's college football, I think it's kind of gross to revel in the money that's being wagered in a sport where the players aren't being compensated at all. So, Mike, you're the former host of a gambling podcast. Yes, I, we, I trust we couldn't you talk about me. gambling on that podcast, though, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I trust uh, that you can tell me the right opinion to have here. Is this a good thing that ESPN is taking gambling talk out of the TV shadows? I think that it is the tension between puritanism and pornography. So 
Puritanism is bad, but the corrective is not schlock, you know, um, when you think about the movies of pre-code Hollywood and then you think about the uh, film noir, oh, they communicated a lot sort of subtly. And that is the way I think that Al Michaels and Brent Musburger used to talk to viewers and people out of respect for them because it was pretty clear that they knew that people were gambling on games, but they didn't hit you over the head with it. But of course, when you give the, when you allow an outlet like ESPN or what ESPN become, especially with their, um, you know, carnival, almost minstrel-like pregame shows, of course they're going to take it too far and make you hate for the fact that anyone ever invented the statistic of the over-under. So I don't think it should be banned and verboten, but there are ways to talk about it that won't make people who don't currently have a four-game parlay going on feel queasy. Is Western Michigan going to cover? Yeah, Just that's it. Your... That's my lock of the week, by the way. <laughs> Is Western Michigan going to cover? Just put your lips together and blow. That's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my pick. Scott, what do you think? I, I'm conflicted from the get-go about Division I college football and hoops. And, and it, you know, it seems to me that you know, the, the stuff that never gets talked about or rarely gets talked about are the Toradol shots at halftime uh, to get players back out on the field. And just the reality that if you're attending uh, a Division One football or basketball school and you're determined to make the most of your college education, you are going to be worked so hard that you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. So, I, you know, as far as the gambling goes, all of it strikes me as, as you know, the Casablanca, that, that the colleges, that uh, ESPN, which is a, a business partner, and, and also my part-time employer at this point in my life. So I, I, I really am con- conflicted in that regard, too. You know, the fact that, that, uh, that so much is made of something that really does drive a tremendous amount of the interest in the sport, even at the college level, you know, is supposed to be finessed somehow. Or that the college, you know, whatever, whatever group it is that represents uh, college athletics at any given moment is uh, p- putting pressure uh, to maintain, you know, this travesty of a sham, of a mockery of a sham, uh, you know, I get irked by it more than anything else. But but my experience goes back to being an academic advisor at the University of Iowa, not not in the athletic department, but in the College of Liberal Arts, and seeing firsthand, uh, you know, what the recruiting is like, uh, what the pressures are like, and what the reaction of an administration is like when a football player, in this case, runs afoul of uh, you know laws governing uh, sexual assault and rape, so I, I've been really a hardened cynic for many many years now. That reminds me of one time I interviewed a doctor about HIV positive boxers, and he said the problem, the health problem, is not the HIV; it's the boxing. So, Scott's take on college football allowing gambling? Yes, yeah, not the gambling; it's the college football. Well, like with anything else, you know, anyone connected with college sports is not covered themselves with glory when speaking on this topic. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey said, um, you know, told USA Today in an interview on this topic, there is an existing concern about the inexorable march toward gambling being more and more central to sport. I mean, just hearing any kind of sanctimonious garbage like that out of the commissioner of a, a conference that is profiting so hugely from the SEC network and, you know, on the backs of these players, it, it's it's gross. It, you know, we don't like to hear things like that. And, you know, then there was all this conversation about, you know, the rise of daily fantasy sports and people, you know, with various schools saying, oh, if a, one of our players is, you know, doing daily fantasy games, they could get suspended for a year, lose their um, eligibility. 
And so there is kind of just anything to do with college sports and money and ESPN, which paid $7 billion to show the college football playoff. It's just a massive turnoff. But I don't know if, if that means that we shouldn't hear talk about gambling. Gambling isn't really the problem. It's everything else around college sports, as as you guys have both said. Well, I don't think they should necessarily do picks against the spread, although picks not against the spread, uh, that's kind of boring. Like, yeah, we all know that Nebraska is going to beat, um, let's say, University of Nebraska at Omaha, Uno. So buying too much into the lines that the gambler set does not seem like a service to the viewers. However, totally ignoring the fact that a point spread is a decent piece of information that tells you if one team is better and how much experts think they're better. That's useful and over under in the same way. So, you know, I would acknowledge it, but not throw my arms around it. I wouldn't talk about gambling more than I talk about advanced metrics. You know, I wouldn't talk about gambling more than I would talk about any other stat that actually allows you to understand the game more. And that's why I think Al Michaels, you know, does well. He usually does it with a wink, but there are ways that you could actually communicate, hey, who's going to win this game? Who do we expect to win this game? What are some of the important things that could happen in the game? And gambling is a big talk and a big part of that. That's not why ESPN's doing it. They're doing it because of viewership and that people tune in because of gambling and because they're partners with FanDuel and DraftKings. That's why they're doing it. But there's a way to do it right, I think. Well, let's get away from the college stuff. And I think it's a simpler question around the NFL. And I didn't realize before doing research for this topic, that the NFL explicitly banned conversation about gambling from its broadcast partners during NFL licensed programming back in 1990. And so, you know, the reason that those prognosticators vanished from the airwaves, it wasn't just because Jimmy the Greek was a huge racist. It was because the NFL didn't want them to, you know, sully its broadcasts with any talk of of spreads and over-under. So, Scott, do you think that it's less of kind of a murky area when it comes to the NFL that they should just feel free to talk about over-unders and, and point spreads and that that does fans a service? Uh, I, I kind of agree with Mike. I mean, to the extent I, I have any any contempt for protecting the brand or anything like that, I, I think it's it's overcome, not just mitigated, by the the idea that, you know, I'm, I'm watching a sporting event. I, I actually don't gamble. My kid plays fantasy. There's very little money involved. He won't do the fan duel. You know, I've offered him a grand to, as a starting fee because <laughs> I think he's a pretty knowledgeable, uh, bright young man. God bless him. So an investment. You're trying, yeah. to, you're trying to make him into a problem gambler. I'm trying to make some money, you know, like the Simpsons episode where Lisa was a great, you know, a, a great picker. Yeah, but but I, it would it would you know to the extent that I, I tune into the NFL beyond seeing the Browns lose every week, I, I think it, it it would sully whatever pleasure I would get out of watching the sporting event to have the announcers in any way, and I, I wouldn't be getting cover alerts if they were still being given, but you know, but, but to have them cater to that segment of the viewing public, you know, it, it seems stupid, excessive, and and uh, you know, totally unwarranted to me. I, writing it into the contract, listen, this is. This is what they do. It's not as if these are merely clients of ESPN or any other broadcast entity. These are business partners, and you're allowed within the context of that relationship to make whatever demands that that the other parties will willing you know, to acknowledge and support. Well, two points. I think Tony Kornheiser made a a good one writing in 1990 about 
the NFL ban on gambling talk, that it was actually good for the marketing of the league to have gambling talk be kind of sotto voce and for people to think, oh, there's all this money being wagered on the NFL, but we're not talking about it. It made it seem kind of like cool and illicit. And at the same time, now you have, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel have both sponsored us. There's sponsoring every NFL show in existence. And there's huge amounts of fantasy talk that it is sort of like a kinder, gentler, safer way to talk about what is essentially, it's not just essentially, what is sports gambling. And so you have the kind of, you know, more illicit, cool stuff, you know, that Al Michaels whispers about at the end of Sunday Night Football. And then you have the more like safe, quote unquote, family friendly fantasy that gets talked about, you know, in the open. And I think, you know, both work for the NFL in different ways. And I've noticed during game broadcasts, so they're still sort of safe harbors and they still try to keep it out of game broadcasts. Well, college does explicitly, the uh, college poobahs said, keep that out of the game broadcast, but you could do it in the official pregame shows. Whereas uh, 30 years ago, when the NFL banned it and Pete Axtelm had to speak in code about what the pick was for the game, th- then it was banned in the official pregame show, but the pre-pregame show, you could do all your picks. But anyway, I'm watching watching the broadcast is Solomon Wilcox, in fact, saying that the uh, Dolphins tight end, hey, you fantasy players out there, he might be a guy to pick up. Listen, the guy just had a touchdown and 75 yards in the game. I mean, you're not telling me anything. (laughs) I don't know, Solomon Beals. But I guess it's an acknowledgement. We have to describe the world and the game as it exists, not as we pretend it didn't exist. And without too much um, bombacity, I think there's a way to navigate that and talk to the fan as they're watching the game, because so many are watching for fantasy uh, players. Speaking of someone who was known for how he talks, the language of uh, of Yogi Berra was much discussed uh, last week after the Yankees catcher died at age 90. Uh, the New York Times obituary, I thought, had the perfect headline. Yogi Berra, Yankee, who built his stardom 90% on skill and half on wit, that was dies at 90. Yeah. Not quite perfect, because I think those percentages actually should be reversed. You can credit 90% of Bera's enduring fame to the words he said and those attributed to him, maybe 50%, maybe 40, 30 to the skills that led him to the Baseball Hall of Fame and uh, 10 World Series titles. In 1949, Yankees manager Casey Stingle described him as a very strange fellow of very remarkable abilities. He made 15 all-star teams, hit 358 home runs while striking out just 414 times. He also supposedly said that you can observe a lot just by watching. And when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Mm-hmm. Scott, you interviewed Yogi for Esquire, a piece that was published in 2002. What did you make of him and what did you make of how much of the legend of Yogi Berra was the actual Yogi Berra? It was a difficult interview. Uh, he was, I think Dave Kaplan's the name of the guy who runs uh, the museum at Montclair State University and is very protective of Yogi. And uh, I remember Yogi, there was lots of ear hair, none of it mine at that point. 
And Yogi, Yogi was a little impatient. He kept finishing my sentences. He did give me one great journalism tip, you know, that I, I and, and maybe a lot of other people who, who commit journalism need to be reminded of. He said, uh, you know, ask me questions. We might get something. I'm sure I was busy, you know, bloviating about how awesome it was to be sitting in the Yogi Bear Museum with, with Yogi. But it was a difficult interview. He was not the most patient guy at, at that point. I think one of the things that, that came through in the obituaries that I felt back in 2002 is he wasn't particularly at ease with the idea that he was just kind of a doofus, a, a, a guy who, I mean, he wasn't, I think he finished eighth grade, you know, you know back, back in his neighborhood in St. Louis. He was a, a D-Day guy. You know, it, it, it was a very, very different life from that, that which most, most athletes, professional athletes that we know today have lived. You know, parents were immigrants, all that stuff. And I don't think one more guy showing up uh, with a recording device and sitting with him for an hour, hour and a half was, was his idea of quality time. He liked to play cards. He liked to golf. And the last thing that he needed was one more jackass, you know, asking him about, you know, did you really say this? Did you really say that? Or what was it like to catch, you know, Don Larson's? Uh, it was a perfecto, right? Larson's? Yeah, perfect game of World Series. Yeah, yeah, and everyone, at least I've seen a lot of references to it as a no-hitter. <laughs> and, and I think that's selling the whole experience short. Anyway, it, it, was a, it was not an easy interview. I no, I never met Yogi Berra, and the things I always heard about him were that when if, to get him to come to something, you had to pay. <laughs> he was not going to do it for free. But I did also hear that he was genuine and kind, and his literacy program. Sure, every athlete has uh, some charity associated with them, but I hear that they were legit, and he really put his heart into it. And I also heard, and who knows if these stories are true or how much they get inflated, that when Phil Rizzuto was spending his last days in a nursing home, he would go and play cards with Phil Rizzuto all the time. And even if it's not true, right, as long as you are aren't as long as you're the small squat man who everyone loves now that could turn into Kirby Puckett right and so we got a major overhaul taking place but if the worst you do of the small squat man who has a smile and everyone seems to love and said funny things if the worst you do is Yogi Berra you're okay because you can't take away the fact that he stormed the beaches or was at least involved in D-Day you can't take away the fact that he won 10 World Series the most ever and that I can't see how that could ever be matched or eclipsed. And he was such a great baseball player, and he seemed to be enjoying the game. And when you contrast it with Mickey Mantle, who had a smile on his face, but clearly had demons and was terrible to people, abjectly terrible to people close to him. And when you contrast it to Joe DiMaggio, who was sour, right? So he was the guy who spanned that era, and he was the greatest Yankee personality of his time. Well, the thing that I find fascinating about him, and I think you could put Babe Ruth in this category too, is that there are people where if you didn't know anything about sports, you didn't follow baseball, you still know who he is. And you might think he was actually a fictional character mm -hmm. just because of his name. It doesn't seem like a name that a real person would have. And just how his kind of legend and character was built around, you know, this trait that really had nothing to do with what made him great as an athlete. You know, the fact that he helped put together the, you know, Yankees defensive shifts and, you know, called games for, you know, Don Larson when he threw a perfect game and other great Yankee 
pitchers. But he was kind of complicit, right, Scott, in how his his image was built. He put together books about yogiisms. He got famous, you know, based on saying stuff like even Napoleon had his Watergate and a nickel isn't worth a dime today. But that's true in terms of inflation. <laughs> he was always a smart guy. I mean, he refused to sign for half the bonus that Garagiola got and eventually got the $500 he was seeking. You know, he, he was a guy who went head to head at a time when there were no agents representing players in, in negotiations and at least by reputation extracted more in terms of salary from the New York Yankees than, than any other player did just in, in, in terms of his price range. So, and, and there is nothing. I mean, he had two sons uh, uh, play pro sports. One, one of them, his, his son Dale, ran into trouble, you know, as, as a lot of major league ball players did, baseball players did, with cocaine in the 80s. That The man lived a, a full, rich, complex life that none of us you know, is ever going to really know any, anything about in terms of its effect on him. But for everything we know, whether it's the rings, whether it's the museum and learning center at Montclair State, and, and the yogiisms, the guy I think at one point threatened a defamation suit against uh, Yogi Bear. Uh, you know that you know that it was in, intruding on 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 his brand. You know the the guy was no fool, and he was no buddy's fool. Which circuit oversees Jellystone National Park? I'm just wondering who would have heard that appeal. Triple I League back <laughs> when. <laughs> Interesting aspect about Yogi Berra as a baseball player. Te- great bad ball hitter, you know, strike zone, nose to feet, yet never struck out. Now, I know strikeouts have been reimagined these days and they're not that big a deal. But, I mean, just look at some of his statistics in, and I'm going to talk in the after all about his defensive statistics. So his final MVP season, and yeah, he won three MVPs and came in top five voting four other times all in a row. So he never finished lower than fourth in MVP voting from the year 1950 to the year 1956. Oh my God. And just to take, and then he never struck out more than 32 times. I mean, he was, his last MVP season, he hit 27 home runs and struck out 20 times. So he's striking out at Jose Altuve numbers with Jose Bautista power. Crazy. (laughs) You know, you think about how he would be seen differently if he had played on the Cubs and Ernie Banks had played on the Yankees, uh, for example. You know, I was thinking about, oh, let's switch Derek Jeter and, and Alan Trammell because so much of Jeter's greatness is built around, or the concept of his greatness is built around him being a winner and nobody gives a shit about Alan Trammell. But then, you know, in fairness, with somebody like Ernie Banks, that guy was famous and is famous for his personality and sunniness and just, you know, being perceived as a lovely guy. So I think you could have imagined, or, you know, Joe Garagiola, who grew up right across the street from uh, Yogi Bear in St. Louis, was known for his funny sayings and had a long career as a broadcaster and on the, on the Today Show. So it's possible that Yogi Bear would have carved out a life for himself in that way. But so much of his, you know, reputation is built on being a winner, it allowed him to have this long career in baseball as a manager, too. Um, but, you know, getting back to Ernie Banks and what you guys were saying about not knowing somebody's inner life, there's an incredibly sad story in Chicago Magazine about Ernie Banks's last days and about how lonely he was and kind of bitter about his career and just so opposite to, you know, the let's play to it's it's a great day for baseball, always smiling sort of guy. Um, it does seem like Barra 
you know, Scott, you mentioned in your interview and your interaction with him about how he wasn't maybe exactly how we perceive him to be. But it doesn't seem like his image was that far off from who he was as a person. And so I think we can be happy about that, that it, it's not like, you know, this guy was a, an asshole. Oh, and I didn't mean to suggest he, he was even even sitting there. Just, you know, you, you get the feeling, and we weren't paying him. It's not like Esquire magazine was giving him any money, that he was taking an hour, hour and a half of his time and giving it to yet another, you know, face asking him questions he'd already answered a thousand times, if not more. It is now time for After Balls. So one of Yogi's famous uh, sayings was, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. And it's been attributed to a lot of people. And even with Yogi, he said that it was about a lot of different places. But in a profile written by Roy Blunt Jr. in Sports Illustrated, he said it was about a restaurant called Regeri's in St. Louis that Yogi says that he made it up when he was the head waiter there in 1948. Yogi's wife said that that's not true, and they bickered about it in a loving manner. But uh, let's honor Regeris in St. Louis in uh, Dagoville. Mike, what is your Regeris? Da- I, I, I said it wrong. It was Dago Hill, so it's slightly less offensive. Dago Hill. Dago Hill, slightly less yeah. offensive. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and let me just say that uh, ho- when I compared him to Jose Altuve, who's the lodestar for not striking out, Altuve has struck out 63 times this year. So he struck out two-thirds less than Altuve. So Yogi Berra was a great defensive catcher, too, and he routinely threw out more than half the uh, batters who tried to steal on him, which at the time, in the 50s, wasn't that unusual. He only led the league in that statistic, I think, once. But, you know, he, he would throw out 57... In 1950, he threw out 57% of attempted de- uh, base stealers. Roy Campanella threw out uh, 62 in uh, 1951, he's, he threw out 54% of base stealers. Campanella then, 69. But still, Barrow was in the top 10. But who threw out the greatest percentage of attempted base stealers? A guy I didn't know but was glad to meet. Twas James Francis Shanty Hogan. James Francis Shanty, you could not run on James Francis Shanty Hogan, but the problem was. James Francis Shanty Hogan put himself in a position of not being able to run very well either. Because after the early 30s, when he was throwing out everyone, he was also throwing a bunch of stuff down his gullet. I have this headline from 1935, the Pittsburgh Press. Too heavy, Shanty Hogan's weight puts him out of majors. A fat man's fate yesterday overtook Frank Shanty Hogan, veteran catcher, when he was released unconditionally by the Boston Braves too cumbersome to navigate the base path safely on anything less than a home run. I thought they were not really say, mincing words there. Yeah, <laughs> on anything less than a piano. I worried they were going to say on anything less than a scooter. The otherwise capable hard-hitting backstop was discharged. 
confirming this account of Shanty Hogan was an article from 1960, New York Times, an article on Andy Cohen, who I didn't know, but Andy Cohen was a second baseman for the New York Giants. He supplanted or seceded Frank the Fordham Flash Frisch in that position, and then later Rogers Hornsby. He was apparently so loved, here I'll read this New York Times article, in no time at all, he was the darling of the East Side, the Bronx, Bensonhurst, and Way stations. So sensational was his hitting that a tabloid began printing a daily box comparing Cohen's average of 400 plus with Hornsby's 250 minus. Well, don't worry. Hornsby turned it around. Cohen speculated that he was welcomed on the Giants because, I'll, I'll read a quote, I got an awful lot of publicity that year. They said I was the Jewish ball player John McGraw always wanted. But McGraw was primarily interested in good ball players, although I know he felt that a Jewish one wouldn't do any harm at the gate. So, how does Andy Cohen and Shanty Hogan combine? How else would you combine? A vaudeville act. They did a vaudeville act together as Cohen and Hogan, although when they played in Boston, they were billed as Hogan and Cohen. And indeed, the article headline of this New York Times story comments on the quality of the Andy Cohen, Shanty Hogan vaudeville act. Subhead. Oh, no, this is the headline. Three, two, one. The headline, he helped kill vaudeville. (laughs) Not much for a euphemism back, no. in, back in the day. The fat mincing man who killed a popular <laughs> art form and his Jewish friend who once out hit Rogers Hornsby for a month. Come see them as they sing and dance their way across the stage and into your hearts. <laughs> Scott Rabb, what is your regarious? It's a, it's a wistful one. <laughs> I'm glad I heard about Shanty first. Uh, today is the Cleveland Cavaliers media day, and I'm not there. Last year I was there, but they wouldn't let me in. And I, I bought uh, dozens of donuts to hand out to the other media in the shuttle bus parking lot. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm born and raised as a Cleveland fan and, and uh, have, have taken that uh, as far as I possibly could. When LeBron left the Cavaliers back in 2010, I was, I was uh, the, the only, only person in the fan base lucky enough to be able to uh, extract a pound of flesh. And, and I guess it's a cautionary tale because I did write, write a book called The Horror of Akron. I'm trying to write a sequel. I uh, never anticipated LeBron returning to Cleveland. Uh, and, and when he did, I don't think anyone was, was more thrilled than I was. I, I've rethought, uh, refelt, uh, tried to make my way back into Cleveland Cavaliers fandom. And, and it's, it's tough. I mean, we all, uh, all of us... Uh, today uh, make our living one way or another off of covering sports, and I think we all feel a uh, tremendous degree of passion, uh, or we wouldn't have wound up there. But now I'm confronted with with the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to write another book. Access wasn't great to begin with as far as LeBron is concerned, and I don't need access to write the book, and, and the publisher certainly understands that. But I'm I'm just so sad. Uh, it was, it was uh, a wonderful... As, as, as awful as the history of Cleveland sports has been for almost my entire life, it was always wonderful to have that connection to something that wasn't religion and wasn't my family of birth that felt pure, that, where I felt great passion. Uh, and, and now I'm just left feeling uh, a little bit of gratitude because I've been able to make a living doing what I do and even profited from LeBron's departure and will profit from his return 
but gosh, I would I would like to be there in Independence, Ohio today at Cleveland Clinic Courts. And and the, the, I guess the ultimate moral is is yeah, you know, if you're going to be a hater, you know, what goes around comes around. <laughs> ultimately, you'll be destroyed too. And and it benefits the rest of us nothing, save for a few donuts in the parking lot. <laughs> those were good well, donuts. The, I would I would yeah, imagine those were good you donuts. know your way to sports writers' hearts. Yes, I do. The book never would have existed if you thought that LeBron would have come back to Cleveland, not because you would have been holding out, you know, hope to get access next time, but because the entire premise was that LeBron was gone for good and you were kind of reckoning with your feelings about it, right? And and reckoning with what what happened to... to, I'm a nice guy, basically. How, how, (laughs) How did I become someone who wishes ill upon a young athlete making a decision about what's best for himself and his family professionally. How did I turn into this? That's really, I, I think, this, the core of, of the horror of Akron. But at this point, I think it's it's depending on whether or not he leads uh, uh, the Cavaliers and, and the Northeast Ohio fan base to, to the first championship since the 1964 Cleveland Browns. It, it's still got some biblical resonance to it. Uh, it's just funny how the guy, the kid who ran out on the court at a Cavs home game when the Heat were visiting and embraced LeBron mm-hmm. along with a Please Come Back t-shirt, he has been officially welcomed back. <laughs> I was credentialed for two years by the Cavaliers. I was their boy. I was their tool. And, and once he came back, I was persona non grata. And I think that's kind of as it should be. I just feel so weird and sad about it. Well, Cavs owner Dan Gilbert said and did things that were way worse than what you you said about LeBron. <laughs> In worse yes. fonts. Yes, and, and, and were I a billionaire NBA team owner, there might be a way to it. And, I, and I've made offers, by the way, and sincere offers through the same PR people who put together the letter for sport. You know, the Lee Jenkins uh, uh, yeah. edited uh, letter in, in SI. Uh, I've made overtures. They're not even interested in an apology. Which is, you know, fine. I'm good at apologizing, but in this case, there's no, there's no interest whatsoever. Hey, Josh, what's your regaries? Thank you, Mike. Um, so I'm going to talk about a story that's old. It's from 2014. It's ancient, but it's new to you. It was new to me. Uh, Michael Grunwald, who's a writer for Politico magazine, just tweeted it last week. The tweet, which, how could I not click on this? read Tennessee Teachers Union credited leap in test scores not to reform, but to motivational video by backup QB. So here is the background for those of you who are not extremely dialed in to the latest news in Tennessee education policy. I'm going to quote from Education Week here, which wrote that a few years ago, the state put in place a revamped teacher evaluation system that takes account of student test score data. After putting in place that system, Tennessee was one of only three jurisdictions in the country to show gains in both reading and math on the most recent national assessment of educational progress. So do we have correlation here or do we have causation? That is the question, my friends. Tennessee's largest teachers union hates the new teacher evaluation system, does not want anyone to think it had anything to do with the rise in test scores. And so the Tennessean newspaper reported in April 2014 The union claimed that there was another reason why Tennessee students were so awesome at this test, a motivational video shown to all fourth and eighth graders before they took the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That is a pretty strong claim, but thankfully it is one that we can judge for ourselves. That video, which was produced by the Tennessee Department of Education, 
is on YouTube, where as of Monday morning, it has 590 views. I'm going to play it for you, uh, Mike and Scott, in full. And I want to emphasize this is a real video. This is not a joke. This video was actually shown to Tennessee fourth graders. Um, I'm going to play it now. I'm going to stop. We'll, we'll inject our commentary kind of as it goes along. All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Matt Hasselbeck, quarterback of the Tennessee Titans. And I'm Chrissy Haslam, first lady of Tennessee. All right, you can tell they really wanted to motivate Tennessee students mm-hmm. because they chose the governor's wife yeah. and the quarterback who doesn't play to be uh, the stars of this video. They're in some sort of indoor practice facility just to kind of set the scene. Hasselbeck is wearing his Titans jersey with no shoulder pads, though, because he is at no risk of entering a football game. But according to Tennessee state law, if Bill Haslam had his ACL torn, doesn't wife Chrissy get to assume the powers of the governorship? Isn't that how it works? (laughs) It's a pretty equivalent position. Yeah, I'm totally motivated after you explain that to me. All right, let's, let's go back to the video. I'm talking to you today because you have been randomly selected to take the NAEP exam. Fourth graders all over the country are taking the test this year, and this test gives us a chance to see how Tennessee students are doing compared with students in other states. So so it sort of sounds like Hasselbeck is kind of running the Scantron sheets in the back room. I like how he says that the Tennessee students give us a chance. He's really a part of this team. Scott, are you motivated I, so far? I, I, I do hear a lilt in his voice. Yeah, yeah. There's a lilt. All right, back, back to Hasselbeck and Haslam, the dynamic duo. Governor Haslam and I are very proud of the hard work that Tennessee teachers and students are doing each day. We're excited that you're representing Tennessee on this exam, and we know that you will do well. She's a good wife. She calls her husband governor. I hope Hasselbeck <laughs> called. Who, who was it, Vince Young at that point, QB1? I think it was Jake Locker. Okay. So maybe they did make the right choice. Yeah. Did you see the we know that you will do well as motivation or more of a threat? <laughs> I, I, I think it was a threat, failed threat. I can't, right, I can't help but think about the guy. I assume it's a guy writing it. Someone wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> You don't think that Hasselbeck just ad-libbed his lines? Right. I, I don't. Listen, you got to say you've been randomly selected. Yeah. Kids love <laughs> hearing they've been randomly selected. <laughs> That's the part that really is heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> now we, we return to our message already in progress. Hundreds of fourth graders from all across Tennessee are taking the NAEP exam. You're Tennessee's team in reading and math, and I know you'll do your best. The exam is a pretty hard test, so you have to stay focused until the end. You get credit for every question that you get right. So even if you miss questions, keep trying until the very end. It's a little like football. If I get sacked on one play, I still need to get up and complete the next pass. (laughs) That analogy really puts it in perspective for me. He was sacked 344 times. So the man knows what he is talking about. Apt. I'm ready to take my number two pencil and throw it through a wall for those two. All right, back to Mrs. Haslam. All of us have a lot of Tennessee pride, and we love having the chance to show the country what Tennessee students can do. Even though this doesn't count for a grade, it matters for our state. So we're counting on you to try your best. All right, hold up. This does not count for a grade. I'm feeling way less motivated. Way less. I feel like this is sort of like a long con here. They've been they had me for the first 80 seconds. 
They've been randomly selected in the way uh, that a bully randomly selects the kid he's going to shake down for milk money. That's the random selection. The governor and I want to thank you for your hard work and wish you the best of luck on the NAEP exam. No, you will make Tennessee proud. Good luck on the test. Thanks for being on the team. Tennessee is lucky to have you. Hmm. I feel ready to run through a wall, but not out of excitement, more out of never wanting to watch that, that video again. I can't believe um, he didn't end with a football pun. So go for the end zone. So throw a Hail Mary. So maybe, maybe the guy who was writing the script, it was like it was like 4.59 and he just had to get it out the door. Right. Couldn't come up with the right football analogy. Did, did the teachers union produce anything? Any motivational stuff for that, that test? I believe this was from the, the Department of Education. That This is not from the teachers union. Right. I'm just I'm, wondering if there was a counter ad going, you're all doomed to a life of tobacco, <laughs> tobacco auctioneering. <laughs> that video was hosted by Jake Locker. I believe I believe Randy Weingarten showed up saying, "Hi, I'm Randy Weingarten. Hope everything you're going for hits the end zone." <laughs> All right, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links to the stories and motivational videos we discussed at slate.com/hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com/slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thanks to Max Linsky and to Scott Rabb for being on the show today. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.